Okay, two weeks ago, we started working our way through the book of Galatians. Um, during the first week, we looked at the reason why Paul was writing the letter in the first place. We looked at his authority to be able to write the letter as well, uh, and why we should be working towards active maturity as Christians. Last week, we jumped into chapter 2, which we looked at in tandem with Acts chapter 15, because both kind of roughly cover the exact same events, but from two different perspectives. Uh, they kind of reminded us that these words aren't just fairy tales. They're not just these strong cautionary things that have been told to us to help us to be staying in line and obedient, but these are real events that real people experienced as they lived their lives for the God of this universe, the one who created and owns everything. Now, last week, we also looked at the Apostle Peter and his actions, which by all accounts, in all reality, people said, hey, man, you're a hypocrite. Uh, That's exactly what Paul called him out on and how his actions were leading others astray. He was a leader in the church, and he was leading other people astray because of his hypocritical actions, and he had to be called out and confronted. We saw Paul address Peter, and it reminded us as our call as Christians to step up towards Christ. Now, Paul today is going to be doing a deep dive into the subject of this entire book. This is kind of the center chapter of the book, and he does a deep dive into this subject uh, by faith. He's going to be talking about that a lot. Um, This week, I think you're going to find it interesting as we look at his words in this chapter, we actually find the reference for where our memory verse comes from in uh, chapter 3, verse 11, which uh, our chapter memory verse, he was referencing an Old Testament Bible verse which says these words, but the just shall live by his faith. So why don't you say that with me? Here we go. But the just shall live by his faith. And that's Habakkuk 2.4. That's just half of the uh, verse. Now, can anybody tell me what this sign is? Anybody happen to know what sign this is? It's a railroad crossing. I figured everybody would get this. See, look at that. See, I do the easy answers. I'm the favorite teacher everybody likes going to, you know, the easy one. Okay, this sign is a symbol for a railroad crossing. Typically, the main road crosses over a railroad in a completely different direction, just as it's showing, perpendicular, going in complete opposite directions. These two roads not only have two different directions, but also they have two different styles of travel. One is very strict, though the Uh, curves are easier, and the incline might be easier, there is no deviation from the path. While the other road, on the other hand, has a lot more flexibility, it can have sharp turns, it can be very rough and hard to travel at times, and you can actually change your speed and direction and your destination very easily as well. The two different roads and this idea that it brings up is a perfect picture of what we're going to be talking about today. Two different roads, a cross-section going two completely different ways. And today our message is called Crossroads, Religion and Relationship. And Paul's going to be talking about the difference between religion and relationship. Now as today, we're going to see that by living by the law or religion and by living by faith, or relationship, as Paul will say, they're actually incompatible ways of living. If you live by the law or you live by faith, they're actually incompatible. You can really only live one or the other, and that's going to be the whole point of his message today. They are diametrically opposed, and they're going in opposite directions. They really don't have the same destination. As we move through this chapter today, we're going to be covering three main areas, and I'll put those up. Number one, he's going to say, let me ask you this. So he's going to ask, he's going to start the thing off with a question. Then he's going to talk about the law's purpose. And you've probably actually wondered, 
why do we even have the law in the first place? Like, if Jesus is here, why do we even talk about this Old Testament law? We're going to be looking at that today. And then finally, we're going to look at our mediator, which is Jesus himself and his purpose. Now, so let me ask you this. Now, I love the way this chapter starts off. You may remember that last week we ended our service by looking at Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20 is that I have been crucified with Christ first. We're kind of walking through that. Paul is actually ending chapter 2 and setting up chapter 3. Now, we broke it down. He didn't break it down. So this is the way that we have it. But Paul is really trying to get his audience to recognize before them are presented two supposed methods of gaining favor with God. Apparently there's two methods, and he's like, only one of them is actually correct. One of them doesn't work, one of them does. And so chapter three begins with these words. He says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? I love the way he's like, oh foolish. He just, he lays it out straight and plain. Uh, I love the way he does that. In essence, what Paul is saying, he's saying, wake up. Wake up, Galatian church. Look around you and see what is actually going on. Something is happening and you're not paying attention and you need to be. You are being swindled. You're being taken advantage of and led astray. Now, have you ever had a friend who made an incredibly foolish decision? Have you ever seen a friend that was going to do it? And oh, let's face it, we're all prone to making poor decisions at one point or another. I, I've made them. You've probably made them as well. Most of the time, it's something like a purchase that I don't really need. That's, those are my, my, my poor decisions, something I really don't need. So you see your friend start to make a really poor choice, and as a loving friend, you go up to them, and after not smacking them, because you really just want to be like, what are you thinking? You talk to them, and you ask them why. What led them to make this choice? Uh, sometimes, different Bible translations really bring out the verse in its context. So I love kind of using different translations. I love the way the NLT puts the next couple of verses. So I'm going to put these up on the screen. It's two through four. And he says, let me ask you this one question. This is Paul's uh, questioning in uh, the NLT. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You receive the Spirit because you believe the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect on your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? I love the way that he, he goes through that questioning. He says he wants to ask one question, but in typical Paul fashion, he ends up asking five instead of just one. So he ends up asking a whole bunch of questions, just a, a series of questions. And he's driving towards a point. He's trying to be as clear as possible as he can when he's talking to the Galatians. He's trying to get them to think, and he does this by questioning them. Ultimately, his questions are actually trying to get two different purposes. Number one, he's trying to get them to look backwards for their reasoning. And then he's trying to get them to look forward to their consequences. He wants them to look backwards. Well, why are you doing this? And then he wants them to look forward because consequences are coming. So he's trying to get them to look both ways. He's trying to get them to think the situation through. Paul wants the church to keep the big picture mindset of what they're doing in mind and consider very critical areas that they are compromising in their theology. Now his first objective in the line of questioning is trying to get them to think through the reasoning process. He's trying to get them to think through, okay, let's stop this for just a second and let's think this decision through. What are the consequences and why are we here right now? Now, we all make choices. Um, we go to the grocery store because we need to buy groceries. But in all reality, we buy the candy bar while we're waiting in line because we're bored and we're, we just want it. 
Okay, so we, we all have last-minute decisions, and we make good choices, and sometimes we make not-so-great choices. You may have thought through your dietary needs before you went to the store. You might have even thought through your budget, but when you get that candy bar, it's because I want it right now, and it looks really good. That's plain and simple. That's typically the way that that goes at the store line. Now, his second purpose after trying to get the Galatians to think about their reasoning is an attempt to get them to think of the consequences. Often we don't think the consequences through. There are 66 books within the Bible, okay? There are 66 books. They are all in perfect harmony. Unity from beginning to very end in God's word. And it's completely through God's plan. In many ways, this unity within God's word represents God himself and that there is no contradiction in his character. God is unified in whatever he does. He never contradicts himself. And we see that in his word. And Paul is trying to get the Galatians to see that if earning their way by the law is truly what God wanted, if earning their way by the law is truly God's plan, then there is a flaw in God's design and plan for man. Then there must be something changed between what was happening and what God was talking about. And after all, it would be crazy to think that you have to start your journey by faith, but then you finish it by works. And that's what Paul's trying to get them to see. He's like, this is kind of crazy thinking to think that you could start this by faith and then keep it up by what you do, by works, by the law. So he's saying there's two completely different things here. You started it one way, why are you trying to finish it another way? Why are you moving on to something else? And Paul is stating that it has to be one or the other. It either has to be a life lived by faith in Christ, or it has to be a life lived completely subservient to the law. There's no mixing one way or the other. It's one or the other. And this is why verse 11 he ends up quoting Habakkuk, okay? This is how he kind of gets to verse 11, which is our memory verse. I actually want to read 11 and 12 together. I'm going to put those up on the screen, 11 and 12. He says, but no one is justified by the law and the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Now, the central part of Paul's argument is found at the beginning of verse 12 with the words, yet the law is not of faith. This is what Paul says, yet the law is not of faith. So what Paul is saying is that faith and law are contrary principles to each other. They don't actually mesh. They're actually hitting heads against each other. They're going in opposite directions. And he's saying one cancels the other out. And if you're going to live by the law, you cannot be saved by faith. You cannot combine them because they are contrary. He's saying they don't go together. One commentator, while trying to explain this principle, said that he and his wife had to make a cross-country trip. They lived in Florida. They had to go see their daughter in California. He wanted to go by train because, in all reality, train is safer for him. He liked the idea of keeping his feet on the ground. But when he looked at the destination and the route, it was going to take four times as long than it would for a plane. So he opted for the plane. And he was wishing the entire time that he could actually fly by a plane but somehow still keep his feet on the ground which is completely impossible. He wanted the security of keeping his feet on the ground, but he wanted the expedience of being in the airplane. And he was saying that these are completely contradictory ideas. It has to be one or the other. They can't be combined. And this is what Paul is trying to say, that if we want to live by the law, by following rules to get to God and to get into his favor, then we can't be expecting to be saved by faith as well. Saying that you, if you're going to live by the law and you think that the law will save you, then you can't also have faith and say that I, I get saved by faith. When we're expecting that we can save ourselves, there's no longer any room to trust what God is doing. 
because we're saying I, what I am doing is saving me, not God. And that's where he's kind of getting at. Of course, you probably know that's complete nonsense and that the law has never actually saved anybody. The law has never saved anyone. So the question is then, what purpose does the law have? Like, why do we even have the law? If it's never saved anybody, in fact, it's actually just made us understand this situation is worse off than we originally thought, why would we have it? Well, let's talk about it. This is the law's purpose. So Paul actually continues on as his discussion, and he looks at God's design as what the nation has observed in the past and why Jesus had to come and die on the cross, and all of it really comes back to faith in Jesus on his substitutionary death on the cross. Ultimately, he reasons out that the law and the promised inheritance of the Jews to Abraham all point to Jesus. So this is kind of what he says. He's like, all of the law points to the reason why we need Jesus. He follows it up with a very pressing question in verse 19. He says, what purpose, then, does the law serve? So so he's laying this out. These are people that have lived their lives thinking that the law is the golden standard. You have to follow it. You have to obey it. And things are changing. So God doesn't contradict himself, so something hasn't changed, but why are we getting confused? If the law can't save us, then why did God give it to us in the first place? Why did God give it? You ever wonder that? Maybe you've looked at this and be like, God, why, why so many commandments? Like, why? If, if it can't get saved, what is the point? We often see a list of rules, and we see this huge monumental burden And it's being placed on our shoulders. In all reality, many people see these rules and they're like, I'm not going to bear that. And they just walk away. I'm not going to deal with that set of rules. And so many people view Christianity and say, well, this is just a whole bunch of rules. And I'm not going to set myself under these rules. You probably know somebody that says, well, you guys are just a whole bunch of rule followers. And uh, I'm not going to have any of that. So let's read the rest of the verse together. It actually says this here in Galatians 3.19. He says, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come for whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of the mediator. So the key to understanding the law where it's giving is twofold. Number one, it was added because of transgressions. So that's number one. And number two, this, till the seed should come. So those are very important points. He he explains to us why we have the law. Number one, because of transgressions until the seed shall come. Why was it added? Because of transgressions. Well, another word for transgressions, does anybody know another word for transgressions? Sin, there we go. You guys got this. Look at that. See, I'm preaching to the choir here today. Okay, so sins, okay? It was added because of our sins. We know that our transgressions are sins and that the law was given of our sins. This actually means, think about it, In a sin-free world, the law doesn't exist. In a sin-free world, the law has no reason to exist. If it was given because of our sins, there's no reason for it. There's a great example of this found in the book of James. And I want you to hold your finger if you've been reading with me in Galatians. We're actually going to turn to James chapter 1 and look at this here in just a second. Here, James is going to say some very familiar words if you've uh, any familiarity with your Bible. So here we go, James chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 23 through 25. James chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. He says this, For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, and goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Now, I don't know about your children, but my boys haven't always been the cleanest of eaters, okay? 
when they were toddlers, we had this bib that actually had sleeves. It was basically a, an eating shirt. Like, like, it had Velcro on the back, and it was like a spare shirt because they were so messy. I mean, it would end up everywhere. Now, as they've gotten older, they, the mess isn't as bad. But every now and then again, you're like, how do you have potato on your ear? There, there's just no possible reason. So I try to explain it to my boys. I'm like, can you fix yourself? And they keep going like this. And I was like, Go, go look in a mirror. Just, just go look in a mirror. Have you ever found yourself telling your child, just go look in a mirror because I can't explain it to you, obviously? And that's actually what the Bible is for because a mirror doesn't add. It doesn't pull away. It just shows exactly what is there. It just reflects what is there. And that's actually what Paul is saying. And James is actually backing him up here because it is our job to adjust what we see once we look into the mirror. And the law is a mirror so that we have responsibility now to adjust ourselves. Now, the law was given to reveal, not to remove sin. The law was given to reveal, not to remove sin. The question that you may ask is, why did give us, God give us so many rules? Couldn't he have just shown us our shortcomings? Well, maybe. But I don't know about you, but I've met some really dense people. I just saw one in the mirror this morning. Now let me ask you this. When you were a child, if you had been given the option to stop going to school, you know, fifth, sixth grade, you're just like, hey, you no longer ever have to go to school, would you have taken that option? Yeah, most of you probably, yeah, I see a couple of nodding, oh yeah. Um, I, I would have, I would have said, oh yeah, if I don't have to go to school anymore, that's fine by me. You'd have never looked back, just kept on going. What's interesting is we have Galatians 3.24, and we're talking about this very interesting concept here. It says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. In some versions, you're going to see the word guardian used here. Others, you're going to see schoolmaster. And the Greek, and I'm going to try not to butcher the word, in the Greek, it's patagogos, patagogos. It doesn't so much mean school teacher, as some translations might uh, make you think, like tutor or schoolmaster, but rather this actually refers to a servant or a slave within a Roman household. And this servant's job, or the slave's job, was to actually grab the young child, make sure they got up on time, and bring them to school. Then they would hang around outside the school, like a creeper, and then they would bring them back home, okay? So their job was to make sure they went to school, did their stuff, and came back home to make sure they were going everywhere they needed to be. They would lead them. Now, what's interesting is pad or paid has to do with your feet. It's actually where we get the word pedal from. The word pedal, like as in a bicycle, it's where we get pedal. And agagos means to lead, lead by feet. The slave takes the little one because he brings them to. Now, he's not responsible or capable of teaching the child past a certain age, maybe when they're a little toddler. But at one point, he's passing that responsibility on to somebody else. He isn't there to actually school the child and actually teach the child what he truly needs. He's just trying to get them to his destination. That's what his primary purpose is. And that's what Paul is saying is what the law was for. This is what the law was designed for. As a mirror, it shows us what is truly inside, what lies inside of ourselves. In all reality, it shows us our true nature. It removes the lies that we like to tell ourselves and it reveals to who we really are. When we fall and we're on our own, we see that God's expectations are showing us, showing us how desperately short we are, how desperately short. This is what the law was designed to do, is to show us how desperately short we come up to God's expectations. 
and that we need a redeemer. That's actually the second part of verse 19 we were just looking at, which said, till the seed shall come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through the angels by the hand of a mediator. So apparently angels had to bring this message to mankind that this seed that was mentioned would also be a mediator. So the seed is a mediator. Trying to see that picture, bringing in Jesus Christ. So this is actually going to bring us to our final point today, which is the mediator. We actually get this from verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20 say this. Uh, this is 20. It says, now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Okay, so a first glance, singled out verse actually kind of raises more questions than it answers. This is why we never single out just one verse. We always try to read in context. But in following verses, Paul actually explains what he's talking about. In short explanation, a mediator is someone who settles disputes. That's basically a mediator's job, is to settle disputes. They're an intermediary between two parties, and they try to reconcile the two sides. So that's what a mediator does. They stand in the gap, and they try to reconcile the two sides. Paul is saying that Jesus isn't just our mediator, but he's also God's mediator. He's looking out for us, and he's also looking out for God as well. He's looking out for God's interests. You see, the problem is twofold. We need redeeming. We fall short because of sin. We need redeeming. We need a way to be removed from our sin. But at the same time, God demands justice. At the exact same time, God demands justice. And the present, because he, he demands justice because of the presence of sin in the first place. So we need redeeming from our sin and a way for our sin to be removed from us. But God also needs justice to happen because of the presence of sin in the first place. So two things happen to happen at both at the same time. Both problems have to be solved, and one couldn't be resolved by trampling over the rights of the other. And that's why God brings in Jesus, because he doesn't want to trample over our needs just to have justice. He actually cares for us. But he also couldn't bring in Jesus and give us a free pass from our sin and trample over the justice that absolutely needs to happen. So Jesus Christ becomes the mediator to allow both of those things to happen at the same time. So they both have, both parties have legitimate needs. Jesus comes in, and remember the law wasn't designed to redeem us. The law wasn't designed to redeem us. It was just to point out our need for redemption. That's what the law did. No, no one man, child, or anybody in all reality, no woman, will ever be redeemed by following the law. It just, it can't happen. It's just there to show us our need. We're redeemed in God's sight through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, actually trying to redeem yourself through the law is kind of like struggling in quicksand. The more you struggle, the harder you try, the faster you sink. And that's what the law does to those who try to live by it. It slowly swallows them up. Paul says in verses 24 and 25 these words. He says, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. Do you want to know something really interesting? Faith in Jesus actually makes us sons of God, makes us co-heirs with Christ, while strict adherence of the law only makes us servants. Faith in Jesus makes us sons. Strict adherence of the law makes us servants. Faith in Christ brings us into God's family. Following the rules keeps us as servants or slaves. There's a terminology used today you're probably very familiar with who people will say, all of the earth, everyone is one of God's children. Everybody on the earth is one of God's child. This is God's child. This is, everybody here is God's children. You've probably heard this before. 
the Bible, including Jesus himself, actually says something entirely different. If you've ever heard somebody say, you know, this is, you know, everybody here is God's children. Our passage today actually ends in chapter 3. We're going to see these words. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So we get this idea. But this isn't the whole picture. Scripture says that those who have placed their faith in Jesus are to be called the sons of God. Have you ever thought about this special privilege that's given to you? If we are the sons of God because we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, then what about those who have not? We are God's sons and daughters because of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. So Jesus was once speaking to a crowd of really good law followers. Let's put it that way. They were the best of the best. They were known by everyone around them for being the strictest rule followers around, and we know them by the name Pharisee. We know them by the name Pharisee. While speaking to the Pharisees about lineage, uh, trying to get into the kingdom of God by where you were born, by rules and about faith, Jesus says to the Pharisees, says it directly to their face, might I add. He says these words, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks a lie. He speaks from his own resources and he is a liar and the father of it. Evidently, there were some people in Jesus' day who were not sons of God, but rather, Jesus says, sons of the devil. There are many who want to make broad generalizations about how we can approach God. They generalize our sin and they make it like we have these accidental mistakes. Oh no, those are just little mistakes. Those are, those are nothing. Those are you know just hiccups along the way. Our sin is more serious in God's sight than some would make it proclaimed. Jesus didn't mince his words. He says, when you're acting in these ways, you're following your father, the devil. The only way you can become a son of God is through faith in Jesus. Anything else, and you can read by his very clear language, is not the same. Now, Paul finishes the chapter by saying the gospel is the great equalizer in humanity. It's a beautiful thing. He says that we are sons of God having put our faith in Christ, and then he continues on, and I'll finish off in these little things right here. He says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There has always been and always will be people who try to have class distinctions that will tear us apart, um, that will be between people groups, who people who will try to elevate themselves while pushing other people down. Sometimes this is sexism, sometimes this is racism, but whatever the case, the gospel is the great equalizer. We are all equal under the foot of the cross. You are just as important to God as Paul who wrote this book. You are just as important to God as Paul. We are all equal underneath the foot of the cross. Now, God treats us all equally. And today we've looked at Paul's purpose uh, and his questions, and he was trying to dig into the heart of the matter. Like, why... Why would you guys choose this? Consider your actions. He tried to get them to think back and where they started their journey from and what their decisions were going to consequentially lead to. He was trying to get them to think big picture. He was trying to think of what the law does and does not do. He's like, this is what the law is for. And so hopefully after today, you understand the law a little bit better. Ultimately, we see that the law isn't given to save us. It's just there to reveal our sin so that we understand our standing before God. It reveals our sin, not remove it. And then God gave us Jesus to remove our sin. And in doing so, he becomes our mediator. He comes between us and God, and actually he talks to both of us at the same time to be able to make it so that we're no longer slaves to our sin. So I have 
two closing questions for you today. In my typical fashion, I have two closing questions. Number one is how are you trying to approach God? A logical question after today's sermon. Are you still trying to earn your place in his kingdom? Unfortunately, many times, and I have been guilty of this, I have tried to show God that he redeemed me for a purpose and I am worthy of redeeming, so I have tried in my own effort to earn my place in his kingdom. Strict adherence to a set of rules and laws is completely at odds to faith. So what are you doing today? Second question is, what does your love for God drive you to do? We recently taught in family church that our love for God should drive us to want to do things for him. This is different than trying to earn a place in his kingdom. This is out of love and respect for someone who has done so much for us. We shouldn't be living by his standards because of obligation, but because of love and respect for him. Is love the motivator behind those things that you do for God? So hopefully you'll be able to ponder those questions this week and grow closer with God because of it. Let's close in prayer. Father, I do thank you so much for an opportunity to read your word. Lord, I thank you that Paul was used to make it very clear that living by the law was never designed to bring us closer to you, but to reveal to us our own nature. Lord, I thank you for putting plain words so a, a dense person like me can understand them. Lord, I thank you for sending Christ to be my mediator between you and the rest of humanity. I thank you for caring enough that you didn't trample over what we needed, but Christ died for our sins to bring us back into relationship, to give us the right to call you Father. That is such an amazing to change from being a slave or a servant to being someone that's part of your household. I thank you so much for the good things you do, Lord. Help us to rejoice because of Jesus' name. Hey, this is Pastor Jake. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to these messages that we put online. I do pray that these are helpful for the times you just can't be with us in person. I want to remind you that this recording is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be in a community of faith where the Word of God is being preached and proclaimed. We are told by Scripture to gather together so that we each belong to a local body of believers where we are being shaped by being known by using each of our gifts and walking faithfully in God's Word. So thank you again so much for listening and growing with us. I hope you enjoyed today's message.